This is the Bill Kelly Show podcast. Interesting twist of fate, as it were. Uh, last evening, as we found out on Twitter, uh, Hamilton Mayor Fred Eisenberger had occasion to uh, visit one of the area hospitals and got a first-hand look at uh, what was going on with Code Zeros. Now, Code Zeros, for those who may not know, is a situation where there are one or no ambulances available for emergencies because they're all tied up most of the time at hospitals. Well, the mayor joins us to talk about his experience, and uh, if you follow some of the tweets, maybe even some suggestions that might solve this problem. Mr. Mayor, thank you so much for the time. It's good to have you with us today. Yeah, good to be with you as well. We should uh, set uh, the record straight, by the way. You were uh, at the hospital yesterday, but nothing uh, n- on on your part. You were just uh, helping a friend out, is that right? Yeah, exactly. We had uh, uh, someone that uh, was having some medical challenges and some uh, some wooziness and balance issues and uh, and some history with that. So we uh, we thought we'd uh, needed to get them to emerge. So I took them to emerge and uh, stayed and had a uh, you know a fascinating experience. Uh, you know, I've, you know it, I, I'd say I've, I've been to emerge before and I'm well aware of the offloading issue and uh, some of the challenges that uh, the healthcare providers face and the paramedics. But uh, it was just a, a stark reminder last night and the uh, to, to to get into it. I mean, when I saw eight ambulances, uh, you know, parked and uh, and line up of people in the, in the doorway with two paramedics each uh, beside each gurney, uh, you know, waiting for hours and hours at a time. Uh, while I was there, and and understanding that the the, the same experience was being had, or maybe even worse, at uh, St. Joseph's, and similar experience up at uh, Jurevinsky, uh, you know, you, you you really come to understand that uh, that's a, that's just an unsustainable problem that we need to fix. And we've been at it uh, on a number of different occasions, and thought we were making some headway, but clearly uh, the the issue is getting worse and not better. All right, so you were at the general, obviously, since you've mentioned the other two hospitals. Yeah, I was at the general, and uh, and of course you go through your triage and all the work that goes on there. And I I, I stayed with my uh, my friend to make sure that he got uh, he you know just to, to stay with him as uh, as good friends do to keep him company and uh, you know assure and uh, get him through his process. And then I thought, well, I'll just wander around. And so I got into the uh, the emergency entrance way, and of course. Uh, all of our paramedics are there, and of course the triage nurses and a supervisor whose sole job and responsibility is to try and keep that uh, you know offloading flow going as as best as possible, and uh, and heard all kinds of interesting comments from paramedics and healthcare providers or in what they think the problem is, and, and ironically, um, varying opinions of what the cause is. Well, and that's uh, but, that's interesting because I mean you know from my time on as a city councilor and you've been. Uh, in council, not just as a mayor, but as a councillor as well, you do what you yep. can to try to get the stories here. And more often than not, uh, you you rely on managers, etc., to do this. And and over the last number of years, you've had a, a series of them. Whether it's Mario Pastorero from uh, from the uh, the paramedics, uh, whether it's your own staff that are talking about this, and you hear numbers and etc. But uh, you don't often get the opportunity to actually get a first-hand look at this. And, and as happenstance would come forward here, yeah. there you are right in the middle of this and uh, uh, right in, and, and getting that first-hand knowledge from the folks that are right on the ground involved in, and actually, you know, being affected by this. Exactly. And, 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 uh, and, and for people that are, you know, brought their, their, their families in for, you know, regular care and, and uh, uh, you know, we, we, I talked to uh, some of the patients. They were gracious enough to, to have a word, and some of them, you know, are having aneurysm. Some of them are, you know, frequently there, and many of them first time ever, and, uh, you know, going through, a, you know, a, a unique experience. One gentleman, his family, uh, you know, gentleman had a stroke, and, uh, of course, the caring family was there, lovely people, and uh, obviously concerned about uh, dad, and, and, you know, the most important cases were getting the priority care, as it should be. But it leaves uh, those that are priorities, uh, you know, you know, in, in a lurch, uh, you know, especially those that come in by ambulance in the hallway. So, let me let me let me share with you some of the comments. Yeah, I, I, I want to get down to this, and we'll maybe divvy them up as to the healthcare workers, the patients, etc. Because yeah. you were there for quite a while, and you got to talk to a lot of people. I was there, I was there for uh, you know almost six hours, and uh, you know I talked to a ton. I thought, oh, I'll, I'll make this uh, you know a, an added learning experience, and. And we, as you know, we've been at this, this offloading issue for years now. And, you know, there was a time uh, that we thought we were making some good progress. We had a, a, a funded nurse that would help triage and move things along. Uh, that uh, is now, uh, you know, still in place, but not, not working effectively anymore. And I did mention that uh, the ambulance service has its own supervisor that's on every shift that goes to all of the hospitals. And his uh, sole job and responsibility is to 
try and get these patients uh, into into the the hospital care system and get the ambulances back out on the street. But with you know there's restrictions, and so legislation doesn't allow for currently for ambulances to discriminate between where they bring patients to. They are required to bring patients to the emergency uh, as, as, as we speak. There are a number of patients that uh, they're bringing in there by their own admission that don't need to be in an emergency, that could be in a urgent care facility, or uh, to, be, uh, to be frank, uh, some have mentioned them that they just need to go into a drunk tank and sleep it off. Um, you know, there, there are, they, they don't have the authority or the, uh, the mandate to, to, to discriminate where they bring these patients to. They're all required to go to emergency. So, so that, so that and that's an important element, uh, because we've talked with, uh, the, 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 the people that are involved in that. Once they respond to a nine eleven call, uh, they can't say, "Hey, this is a waste of our time." They've got no. they've got to follow through on this, and they have to follow. And they can't take them to an urgent care center. It has to be to a hospital. Correct. And so, uh, so, and, and you know, and, and in many cases, an urgent care center would be just fine, or uh, you know, a walk in clinic, uh, you know, could uh, you know treat some of those folks. Like you know, I hear from the the, uh, the paramedics that. Uh, you know, the, the frequency of calls on Monday where people leave their call over the weekend and decide to go Monday and in the belief that if they call an ambulance, they'll get better and quicker care, uh, which is not true because uh, they're going to get triaged just like everybody else is. Uh, so, but they, uh, they tie, tie up an ambulance in the process for, you know, possibly four or five hours because they can't get admitted to the hospital because now they're in the emergent care system and, and no one wants to absolve themselves of the responsibility of following through on their uh, required uh, procedures. So that's one issue. The other issue is we are a regional uh, 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 hospital center that takes patients from southern Ontario because of, you know, proudly great expertise in cancer and great expertise in heart care at the general. Uh, that then, uh, you know, brings patients from other areas, and those ambulances also come in and offload patients, which adds to the load. And then if you add, you know, flu season on top of that <clears throat> and uh, aging population, and, you know, one of the supervisors advised me that uh, his belief was that far too many patients are left in the hospital that should be in long-term care, and because there aren't any long-term care beds, they can't go to long-term care. Therefore, they remain in the hospital until something's available, and that t- ties up beds for people that are in more critical need of getting admitted to the hospital, which then backs up the line. So there's a multitude of issues here that uh, I think requires a probably a multitude of partners coming together and saying, okay, let's sort this out and let's let's figure out you know some some sort of uh, permissive legislation for paramedics for starters that allows them to uh, to to make a, a you know a reasonable call as to uh, you know what the appropriate location for care should be. Uh, we already know that that far too many people use the emergency services as a you know a doctor's office, and hence the uh, the the advent of uh, you know walk-in centers, and that certainly has helped uh, that situation. But uh, now we're dealing with that same kind of problem in the ambulance services, and obviously they want to be out. They're frustrated. Paramedics are frustrated because you know they don't see it as their job to be standing in the hospital for five or six hours and they they need to stand with their patients until they're they're admitted and then they can they can go and they're so most of their shift they're doing nothing uh, other than uh, some monitoring for some individuals that are that that are now sitting in hallways in the hospital so you've you've had a chance to talk to the people that are being impacted by this on a shift by shift basis do they do they have any ideas on how to make this better well, and, and, and so I've just kind of gone over the whole range of ideas that I've heard. So freeing up the long-term uh, care beds or getting more long-term care beds would free up the uh, the ability for people to uh, move out of the hospital more quickly and then free up those beds for admittance for, for more critical care people. Uh, the legislation around, uh, and I, you know, I, I believe there's, there's some legislation that's uh, being, uh, you know, proposed that, would allow paramedics a little more authority to decide where the best level of care would be. Uh, that would certainly be helpful because that would uh, eliminate a lot of uh, folks coming into the system that don't need to be there. Uh, the uh, so so one of the one of the uh, the comments from one of the paramedics uh, was that you know far too many people that are intoxicated are uh, you know the police would call them and say we've got a person uh, you know intoxicated uh, you know lying on the ground or wherever they are. Uh, then, you know, that triggers a whole mechanism 
for the, uh, the ambulance services to get involved. And, of course, they have to take them to the hospital when, by the, you know, one of the comments from the paramedics is they, what they need is, a, you know, a drunk tank to go sleep it off. And they don't need to be tying up the, uh, the, uh, the, uh, the urgent emergent care facilities uh, in, the, in the hospital. So there's a there's a multitude of issues happening here, and I think everyone has a role to play. And I'm 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 hoping that I can uh, I can pull all the uh, the the providers together and start to maybe collectively have a have a summit about uh, how do we deal with this issue because this cannot continue. I mean it's it's now the new normal to have you know six five six or seven ambulances tied up for hours at a time, uh, sitting at the hospital doing absolutely nothing when they should be out in the road ready to deal with, uh, you know, critical emergencies, which is really their main purpose is not patient transfer, but saving people's lives and getting them to the hospital so they can get the critical care they need. It's interesting that you got this feedback, and but but obviously this is, it's not a black and white issue. I mean, I understand, because I've, I've heard this from some frontline workers as well, that, you know, there's some people that probably shouldn't be going, and we should be able to make that, that evaluation. Uh, mm-hmm. I should I should remind them that, uh, that there's a, a lawsuit pending right now that, uh, where there was an evaluation made about an incident and somebody ended up dying. And uh, I, I don't know how that's going to get resolved, but I'm just saying you got to be careful because there's some legal obligations that need to be adhered to as well. So uh, I don't think yeah. that's going to move forward. But I'm getting the sense that what you'd like to do now is replicate this uh, this session that you had last night, Mr. Mayor, and have some of these frontline folks sitting around the table and, and, and coming up with some possible solutions that you could present to somebody. Yeah, I mean, I, I've certainly heard a lot last night, and I'm uh, I'm feverishly taking notes, and I'll, I'll be I'll be talking to our uh, you know chiefs of fire and paramedics and uh, and health sciences. Uh, Rob McIsaac, I cc'd on the, on the message, and I know we all have collective concern about this issue. This is not not one that's been ignored, but it's uh, it's one that seems to be getting worse rather than getting better, notwithstanding the efforts that we've all made to try and make improvements here. And uh, you know, consumer demand, uh, you know, is a factor. Uh, so, you know, educating people on when it's appropriate to call an ambulance and when it's not uh, is part of part of the answer. Uh, you know, people, uh, some people don't need to be treating ambulances like uh, like many little hospitals. They're uh, they're 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 for critical care and not, uh, uh, you know, not for, you know, a flu or I, I, I'm not feeling the best today and I need to see a doctor, but I can't get a doctor and therefore I'll call an ambulance and I'll get care right away. I mean, those are that, that, that's complicating the system, and um, I, I think that's part of the part of the solution is a, a better education process for how people are to utilize ambulances. And I, you know, notwithstanding the the liability issues, and I fully appreciate that no one wants to get caught making a mistake. But at the same time, we have to make some critical choices in how we deliver this service and, and for the greater good. And you know, there uh, there needs to be, I think, a rationalization of how this service is utilized, so that we can uh, not have the mistake of not having an ambulance available when there's someone out there in critical need. And that that's what uh, you know, a code zero is: is if you've got all of them sitting in hospitals, waiting for uh, for admittance and uh, processing, and nobody out on the road to uh, to be able to deal with uh, you know the next emergent care issue that uh, might be a life and death issue. So. I, I think we have to make some choices, and I think uh, you know we've tried. Uh, you know, some of the you know Twitter trolls have suggested you know this is the first time. We've said absolutely not. That's uh, that's ridiculous. We've been uh, we've been at this for years, uh, but it, for me last night it was a stark reminder that it's getting worse, not getting better. And uh, you know what? The longer we leave it, uh, uh, you know, not not having a comprehensive answer to this, uh, the, the worse it's going to get. So. There's a multi-party kind of approach that we're going to have to take here, including the provincial government that may have to come up with more resources. Uh, to uh, And Hamilton, I understand, is unique in this sense. So that this is not the kind of problem that they're experiencing to the degree that we are uh, in other municipalities, largely because we are that regional health center with, uh, you know, that takes patients from, uh, you know, southern Ontario, for uh, for better or for worse. Hamilton Mayor Fred Eisenberger, Mr. Mayor, I uh, an eye-opening experience, and uh, certainly yeah. I hope it's going to be something that's going to create a conversation on this. I appreciate the time today. Thanks so much. Yeah, I want to I thank all the good people that uh, took the time to talk with me last night. Uh, brilliant, wonderful people, all caring, compassionate uh, families and, and caregivers. Uh, you know, they're working hard, and uh, I don't blame anyone, uh, but this is certainly an issue that needs to be resolved. So I appreciate all their hard work and their, their compassion. We'll talk again soon. Thanks again. Thanks, Bill. Hamilton Mayor Fred Eisenberger, uh, with his experiences from uh, ER last night, a six-hour stint at Hamilton General Hospital, he got a first-hand look at what was going on 
with uh, the uh, code zero situation. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. We're going to get an update from Ross McClain, crime specialist, about uh, the uh, troubling news about uh, Bruce MacArthur. More murder charges added, uh, and police say there could be even more victims than what they talked about yesterday. We'll do that in just a couple of minutes. But uh, in response to uh, the discussion we just had with Hamilton Mayor Fred Eisenberger, who spent about six hours uh, in emergency last night at Hamilton General Hospital, uh, and had an opportunity to see firsthand about the uh, the problems caused by the Code Zero uh, ec- epidemic, really, I think is the right word to use here. I uh, wanted to get uh, Mario Pastorero on. Mario, of course, is the president of OPSU Local 256, the uh, uh, paramedics uh, who are those frontline workers that the mayor was talking about, and I wanted him to jump in for just a couple of seconds. Mario, thank you so much for the time. I'm glad you could join us today. Thank you, Bill. Thank you for having me on. You and I have talked about this many times, about the conundrum that your your staff are facing on a daily basis like this. Uh, finally, the mayor gets a, a first-hand look at this right now uh, and, and got a, an opportunity. Talk to us about what you heard the mayor talking about and maybe some of the recommendations. Well, I mean, I'm happy that he got an eyewitness wake-up call of the status of our emergency care system, including our ambulance service, last night. But I really got a question know whether they've been listening over the last number of years we've brought these very issues to the forefront i know firsthand that city council including the mayor have received uh frequent briefs and updates and progress reports on the status of our ambulance service on the status of the code zero events and really they haven't taken it seriously enough to address it so uh, he had to see it firsthand i want to see what follows from that we're available as my union executive, and I'm sure with the chief to sit down and look at some practical solutions to the problem that's before us. But it's nothing new, Bill. Well, it's one thing and for, for elected officials to read somebody's report, and, and the information can be totally accurate, etc. But those are just numbers printed on a piece of paper. It's another thing to actually go down and sit there for six or seven hours and actually see firsthand what's going on. I, I, I think there's a, there's a part of me, Mara, that wishes a lot more people on council could do that or would do that. Well, agreed. And if you have to step out of your office to actually go into the hospital, into the emergency uh, ward and and see firsthand um, what our paramedics experience, what our patients experience, then you should do that. But this has been going on for numerous years. And it's not just a matter of reading a report. There's been presentations by our chief to council to provide them with a status report. Now, what he didn't see last night is the patients that aren't getting the emergency care, those patients that are waiting for hours laying on ice, um, laying in their home with fractured wrists, fractured legs, waiting for an ambulance. He didn't get that picture. And that's the human face of suffering that we haven't been able to address um, fully. There's been band-aids and promises applied, but we really haven't dealt with the fundamental problems. The fundamental problems are we've got too many calls for ambulances to service, we've got too many patients that are held up in the emergency department, and that's a provincial burden that has to be addressed by the provincial government. But with respect to enhancing frontline service, that falls squarely on the shoulders of our city council, Bill. And that hasn't happened to the sufficient magnitude it should. Our call volume continues to increase at a pace of 5% per year. It has not been addressed with commensurate increase in frontline ambulances, Bill. That's part of the problem. I'm glad he's taking notes feverishly, but he should have add that to the list. We need more resources to properly service our citizens, Bill. Are you guys going to be making a presentation during the budget process? Um, I, I talk fre- frequently with, with our, our chief, and I believe he's got that in hand, but um, I think what he's done is invited us publicly to sit down as stakeholders to, to talk about what the problems and the solutions are. I'm open to that invitation. Anytime, any day, we'll sit down and we'll bring to the fore what the issues are in real terms. Listen, I know you're uh, holding up a meeting right now to, to come on here and talk to us about this. I really appreciate you doing that, Mario. Uh, let's keep this dialogue going, and hopefully hopefully, we can get some action from the upper levels of government and maybe even from some of those other city councillors as well. Thanks so much for this today. Thank you for having me on, Bill. Take care. Mario Pastorero, of course, president of OPSU uh, Local 256, the uh, frontline paramedics. Uh, and the story that's not going to go away. And anybody who spent any time in an ER in this city and or in many others uh, can attest to that. All right, well, listen, I want to go back to our uh, story that we heard more about yesterday, a rather troubling situation, of course, uh, about the murders that have gone on in uh, the LGBTQ village, of course, in Toronto over a number of years. 
Uh, Toronto Police held another uh, media conference yesterday and uh, said that more charges have been laid against Bruce MacArthur, uh, the alleged uh, serial killer in this circumstance. And uh, some troubling details were also released yesterday. Joining us to talk about that is Ross McLean, crime specialist, security expert, former Toronto police officer. Uh, RossMcLeanSecurity.com, by the way, is uh, the webpage you want to go to to get some great links about all these things. Ross, thank you so much for the time. Good to have you with us today. It's good to be with you, Bill. And, you know, I just I just want to say right off the top, you know, listening to the way you're covering the, the paramedic situation and, and what I try to do when I talk to you is you get the information from the men and the women on the ground, on the front lines, to get to the truth of what's going on sometimes. It's good to talk to the people in power to get some idea, but there's nothing like getting somebody on the ground who knows what's really happening. Well, and you've done that with this case and with the Sherman case, and it's one thing to, you know, to have the police or, or a superintendent stand up there and say, here's what we know, and that's important information, we get that, but oftentimes the uh, the folks down on the front line can obviously offer an awful lot more insight into situations like this. Is, is that where we're starting to get some of the details about what we heard yesterday, Ross? It is where we're starting to get some of the details. I mean, I was at the presser, uh, listened to Detective uh, Exinga, who's, a, who's a, just a great homicide detective, I tell you. If I had a loved one who was killed, he'd be one of the people I'd want on the job. Bill, that's, that's the best endorsement I can give him. But what we're hearing is, and we're having to hear a lot of this from the, from the people on the ground, because the police have to watch their cards. But the police, once they got onto this guy, I think this, this case has unraveled and come up so fast on the police with the, the depth and breadth of what this, uh, the alleged crimes are for this man, that I, it's, it's pretty much staggering. We're at five premeditated murder counts right now, and the police feel that there's more. The, the stuff we heard yesterday, though, let's, let's go over that just a little bit. Uh, you mentioned about five other charges and, and maybe more to come in situations, but the details that they released about how this guy allegedly uh, killed these victims, uh, and he was a landscaper, and apparently, we're told, disposed of the bodies in various landscaping projects in, in houses around the city. That's, that's, that's sick. Yeah, let's look at how this whole thing is unfolding. I mean, it, it all started back in 2010 when some men started going missing. Some task force were put together by the police with police officers going, asking questions, looking. But, of course, hard to come up with anything when you've got a an organized premeditated serial killer where there's no bodies and there's no crime scene to investigate and there's no word on victims. So it was tough, but then they start to get on to this guy. They start to get on to him and following him, looking at him. They don't know that they're onto some crazy serial killer at this point. They find that he's getting rid of a vehicle. They test that vehicle. They find DNA from two of the bodies of two of the men who are missing. Bang, they're onto something. They're continuing their surveillance. When what, and now they want to try and get more information on the guy to follow him. And what do they see, Bill? But a young man going into his apartment in the morning who goes in there and disappears, and it sort of fits with what they're worried about. So they're sitting there, Bill, having to make a decision. We don't have all the evidence we want yet. We're not where we want to be. They have to kick the door in. They kick the door in. They find this young man who I'm going to presume, we don't know this, but is, was probably a sex worker. There's reports that he's dealt with sex workers before uh, coming to his place. They cut him loose. They make sure he's okay. They start going through the apartment, and what they find is shocking. What they find in the apartment is just absolutely shocking. The detective says he spoke with MacArthur. He wouldn't say if he cooperated or not, but after speaking to him, they went right out and found those planters with body parts apparently in the bottom of the planters. So this is just unrolling fast on the police as they're finding out just the breadth of this bill. I mean, the stories we saw yesterday on Global that, uh, again, as we saw the coverage of the presser, and you were there, Ross, uh, basically police saying, look, we want anybody to come forward that's hired this guy to do any landscaping work because your house, your property could be a crime scene. Yeah, what it's what looking like, I mean, and this is yet to be determined, so I'll just speak sort of in generic terms sure. when, you look, when you look at serial killers. There's a motive. There's a motive to them that's behind what they do, uh, that is sick and it's compelling and it drives them to do what they do. And part of the ad drive is taking trophies, taking control, and sometimes having mementos around. So what this guy, at least in part, was doing was putting bodies in the bottom of planters and putting them at sites that he was going to every day so he could see them 
every time he rolled up, he'd be able to see the control he had over these poor, innocent men who were just preyed upon by him. So the the sickness of this, I think, is going to come out more and more. I understand there's more information to come that's going to be quite gruesome. And, uh, you know, God bless the police that have to do this detail to wake up in the morning to be told, let's go, we're looking for for bodies and planters at homes. It's, it's quite something else. Ross, there's an interesting narrative, and you just touched on it a second ago, that uh, they described yesterday about being under surveillance, and, and there was obviously there were eyes on him. Uh, but then they see a circumstance start to evolve where somebody goes into that apartment, and uh, that was not what the intention was, was to go in and make an arrest that particular time, but they had to make a call right then and there. And that's happened in other investigations where you, you, you think, well, we don't quite have the body of evidence that we may want here, but boy, we better go in there because we're not sure what's happening in situations like that. What's going through the officers' minds as, as this starts to evolve? Yeah, and, that, and that's a decision that actually in many ways it evolves in just about every police interaction. They're looking at something, then all of a sudden they have to decide to move on this. And in this case, they could not risk. Can you imagine the headlines, uh, Bill, had that man been killed? in that apartment with the police outside and they went in and found it and they didn't go in what would have happened there but the police weren't doing it just because they were worried about headlines they were doing it because it's what they had to do but i'll tell you the first thing it reminded me of this goes back a fair bit of time former son of the chief eddie adamson he was on the emergency task force a bunch of bad guys the monroe brothers had held up a bar they were in there with the policeman lying bleeding on the floor saying that they were going to kill him, and Eddie Adamson couldn't get the go-ahead to go in. By the time they finally went in, the police officer was died, and Eddie Adamson couldn't live with that the rest of his life. So stories like this are going to be ones that police and the forensic people, they're, they're going to carry this with them the rest of their life, and it's a bit of a burden to carry, actually. Tough calls, and, and nothing seems to go the way that you want them to in situations like this, and which is why it's such a tough job. Listen, I want you to address something else, and we heard it again yesterday in some of the reports uh, with uh, the, the the media conference, the presser that the police had, uh, is the ongoing criticism that police were slow to act on this, that uh, these missing persons uh, uh, reports had been around for some time and police, well, in some people's minds, didn't take them seriously or didn't do the work that uh, that has as should have maybe gone into this. And I, I guess the insinuation here is that they figure maybe this thing could have been solved and maybe lives could have been saved had police acted more quickly on situations like this. Uh, give give us your read on the criticism and, tr- and and the police response to it. Well, I can certainly understand the criticism and where the people are coming from the community and being concerned about it, seeing people missing. Uh, on the other side, what you can also see, though, is the way that things, um, and this isn't the exact answer for it, but things can slip between the cracks. You have a force that's so big that takes reports, information goes into databases. Do all those database uh, inf- information get put together? Do you have someone focused on looking at it? Do you have the resources to deal with it? And when you get the resources on it, are you able to sort that information in such a way that you can take action on it? It's a problem. And, you know, it's not a little bit unlike the staffing problem you're talking about with the hospitals and the paramedics and the police here and in Ottawa. And I know in Hamilton, they're all stuck with having more work than they have officers and manpower to do it. So the chief said he's going to ask everybody to look into this, and hopefully he'll involve members of the community that feel that they're on the rough side of this, and they can take a real look and try and get this right. It's it's The parallel I was drawing was the, the missing Indigenous women, and many of them, of course, in Manitoba. Uh, over the last number of years, when RCMP are, are facing the same sorts of criticisms, and is it is it the left hand not talking to the right hand when it comes to police services? That well, that's a missing persons report. Uh, uh, not all missing persons report evolve into a, a possible murder investigation, but at some point, I guess that they're concerned about. Well, are you even gathering evidence on that, or is it just sitting on somebody's desk? Well, correct. And we've talked before about things like the major case management system that they have that they used in the Tim Bosma case that was put together that allows multiple police forces to share information, coordinate, and put it together. They're doing it now for the Musitano murder. Uh, They've got that major case management system going here. And as the detective said here, there could be victims for this man with his travel from around the world. He said there may have been people who came here, for instance, from anywhere in the world, for the gay pride parade and maybe they didn't tell their friends or family that they were going because they didn't want to be known to be going to that event and then they end up missing and people don't know why and where they went missing so 
Do they have the information systems that can work worldwide correctly right now? Probably not. It's going to take hard work by determined individual officers, you know, on a budget to try and put it all together. We heard, and I don't know if this was actually confirmed yesterday, but it's a story that's out there right now, Ross, that uh, that pictures of some of the, the victims were, were found on, on this guy's computer, on MacArthur's computer. Have you heard anything about that? There's been a couple of sources that have reported that. And I, that look, that to me, that was going to be one of the first things that tied so much of this together, is because he was apparently emailing, con- uh, contacting people. One of the missing men was a friend of his on Facebook. So today there's always an an electronic and an internet trail, and there'd be troves of information. I mean, don't forget, you look at, and I don't want to get too gruesome here, this is gruesome stuff, but you look at some of these serial killers we've had doing things before, like Magnata and stuff, they film it, right? They film it, they keep videos of it so they can relive it. So, Well, we saw knows? that with the Bernardo case. Yeah, yeah. So who, who knows uh, what we're going to find uh, with this guy. He was, you know, a, this alleged killer. Uh, we'll have to see what comes of this, but it's it's a very twisted psychology that takes the joy in killing someone and the joy in in dealing with the dead bodies and what you do with them and and keeping them lingering on you. It's a real it's a real tough thing for these detectives to deal with. Ross, with this revelation and and the new charges that have been laid right now, where's this investigation going at this stage? It just seems. It's so overwhelming right now, and and you know the the insinuation that could be many, many, many more victims. I mean, it, this conjures up images of of John Wayne Gacy, who was a mass murderer some years ago. Of course, in the United States, buried his victims in his own basement, but you don't know the numbers and and the gruesome discoveries, and uh, that there's got to be this this sense of of my gosh, how do we how do we go forward on this? Where do we go next? Well, they're asking for the community and everybody's help. Uh, to do that, and they have the task force with a dedicated number. I even had someone reach out to me on my Facebook page the other day saying that in 2008 they know someone who lived up in the area up north where this man was from who all of a sudden went missing, a family member, a young brother of somebody. They've never heard from him since, and they wanted to know, should they call the police? And I said, absolutely, get it on their radar, get it to the thing to check. Uh, I, I got a feeling that the numbers on this are going to grow and grow and grow. Does that mean more resources? We were just talking about the staffing circumstance with police services right around the country. But uh, given the scenario and given the enormity of what seems to be unfolding here right now, uh, does uh, does Chief Saunders dedicate more people to this investigation at this point? They are going to do what everybody who's a CEO of a large organization do when you have to do something. They're going to do it. They're going to find a way to do it. But mind you, don't forget, you know, we talked also about the Sherman case that's going on, that double homicide that's going on. I asked them about the resources they're going to need to interview all the people involved in that, and there's hundreds involved in that. And I said, how are you possibly going to get through all these interviews? And the police said to me, hey, if they need the resources, they will get the resources. But it's a lot of legwork, it's a lot of paperwork, and it takes a lot of coordination to put a whole case like this together. So uh, we're going to have to see how they how they make out with it, Bill. Troubling times. Uh, and thanks so much for the, the the work on this, Ross, to, uh, to get some of the details on this. We really appreciate that and appreciate the time today. Yeah, you know, I think it's time for everybody to take a bit of a longer look at everybody and, and, the, and the work they're doing and the people they love and how we care for them, from the paramedics to the, you know, the victims and the missing people. It's time to open our hearts to those people, Bill. Absolutely. Thanks again, Ross. We'll talk soon. Ross McLean, crime specialist and security expert, uh, with an update on the uh, MacArthur murders investigation that's going on in Toronto. Very, very upsetting information. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. The U.S. political scene is uh, front and center today for a number of different reasons. Uh, first of all, of course, is the uh, the story that broke just a little while ago uh, that uh, the associate director of the FBI has resigned earlier than he was supposed to. Uh, because he says of pressure that was put on him by the president uh, to do certain things and to be loyal to the president. Uh, Said that was not the way things should be run. Sounds very much like what James Comey said during his uh, testimony before the Senate Investigating Committee some time ago. And uh, so that's there. Of course, there's the Mueller investigation uh, with rumors that Trump himself will be asked to testify before that investigation. His initial reaction, as you recall last week, was, yeah, I'd look forward to that, and uh, et cetera, et cetera. But his lawyers jumped in uh, minutes after that and said, well, whoa, 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 not so fast. 
Uh, we're not so sure that this is going to be a good thing. We're not so sure the president's even going to do that. Uh, there are uh, concerns now that uh, that the Mueller investigation is actually ramping up. I, I know that the Trump administration had uh, indicated that they thought it was about time to wrap this whole thing up. Then, of course, on top of all that, came the story late last week that uh, by the New York Times that Donald Trump had actually ordered uh, Special Investigator Robert Mueller to be fired last summer. And if you look at the chronology of that around the time that that was supposed to have happened, that was the number, time a number of other employees in the uh, the Trump administration were getting canned. And it was around the time that Trump himself was getting very concerned about the fact that Mueller was making noises about investigating Trump's finances and Trump's family's finances. And he had said that previously that that was a line that he did not want anybody to cross and there was going to be a real concern about where that was going. Now, as this New York Times story indicated, uh, Trump's lawyer at the time uh, talked him out of trying to fire uh, the FBI investigator, of course, Mueller, and uh, it did not happen. But there's a concern that, obviously, that was the intent uh, as to what that's going to happen and the implication that's going to happen, I guess, only time will tell. But the bottom line here, with all of that going on, uh, you got to know right off the top that uh, none of that's going to get mentioned. None of that's going to get mentioned during the State of the Union address. The, the President's State of the Union address, which is always done around this time of year, invariably is a feel-good exercise where the, the sitting president uh, tries to inform uh, the Congress and the nation about how well things are going. And more often than not, it's it's an opportunity to talk about their accomplishments or you know maybe to enhance their accomplishments a little bit. So what are we going to hear from Donald Trump today? Is it going to be a conciliatory tone? Don't hear that too often. Is it going to be a, an antagonistic tone? Uh, I mean, even when he was making his comments to the World Trade Congress last week in Davos, Switzerland, and he got off on his tangent about how the media are mean to him, he actually got booed, which has never happened at that conference, uh, by towards any world leader. So he's setting precedents all over the place. Joining us to talk about the, what we might hear tonight during the State of the Union and, of course, the implications is uh, Aaron Call, who is the Director of Debate at the University of Michigan and editor and co-author of Debating the Donald. And uh, we welcome him to the Bill Kelly Show. Aaron, thank you so much for the time. It's great to have you with us today. Great to be back. We have uh, th- this idea of State of the Union and uh, the idea of it being a feel-good exercise uh, as opposed to a, a hardcore analysis of, of what's gone on in the first year. Uh, what do we expect to hear from Trump tonight? Do we have any indication at all that uh, that, that uh, of the tone of this speech and, and what he's going to try to include? Yeah, I think that um, the tone will be similar to the, his address to the Joint Session of Congress last February. Try to strike a kind of upbeat, optimistic uh, tone in contrast to his inaugural address, which was, you know, the phrase American carnage is what it's always been known for, and that wasn't received very well, so... I think I'll definitely try to pivot. Um, I do think that the task at hand will be made more difficult by the recent government shutdown and uh, difficulty over an immigration reform compromise. He's going to have to kind of stake out his, you know, hard right position on immigration. Um, and so it may be a little bit more difficult there, but he'll hit issues like infrastructure reform and opioid uh, crisis and things like that. Issues that hopefully can get some Democratic buy-in um, in, in advance of the midterm elections that are upcoming in November. But given the shutdown, is there going to be a Democratic buy-in? I mean, I, I'm, I'm developing a scenario in my mind as, as we get prepared for this tonight, Aaron, to see one side of the House sitting there with their hands on their laps and not applauding anything. I think some will uh, sit with their hands uh, and not applaud, and some have, have boycotted, you know, about a dozen and aren't even going to show up for the speech. Um, but, you know, there, it's kind of a micro-targeting. They're are certain uh, Democrats that have no incentive at all to cooperate with President Trump because, you know, their districts are pretty liberal and, you know, voted in favor of Hillary Clinton in 2016. But there is a a small swath of Democrats, and I'd say specifically Democratic senators who are up for re-election in 2018 from states that Trump won pretty handily. Um, They do have an incentive, I think, to at least hear what Trump has to say and potentially, um, you know, agree with some of that because their voters are pretty strongly in favor of Trump and they're going to need their support to be reelected in November. 
What about the Republicans? What about the other side of that? I mean, one of the scenarios that we heard after the election from that eventually elected Donald Trump was that a lot of the Republicans saw that there was a wave going on here, didn't really like a lot of the policies nor agree with them, but they wanted to catch that wave and, and, and hopefully that was going to result in their election, and it did for many of them in situations like that. Uh, we've seen some of those people fall off to the side. Is there still a, a hardcore support there? Is it, Are they Donald Trump fans or are they Republican fans? Actually, um, polling suggests that um, they're mostly Donald Trump fans and that there's even higher kind of party affiliation and ID with being a voter for Trump as opposed to being a voter or member of the Republican Party. And so he's really, you know, just within the last two or three years, kind of taken this party by storm and and molded it in a fashion, um, you know, to, to his liking. But the same thing with the Democrats. There are Republicans in districts that maybe Hillary Clinton carried in 2016, that they see a wave coming, and so they have an incentive to make a break from the president, especially on Im- uh, issues like immigration reform. But there are others that are in very safe uh, Republican House congressional districts that um, will support him no matter what, because they rely upon the same voters. But I think the issue that kind of cuts across all of that for Republicans is the tax cut legislation that passed very recently at the end of last year. That's something that a majority of the party supports, and also Republican donors, which are needed for their re-elections. And so the president's going to talk a lot about the success of the tax cut legislation, the strength of the economy, and that's something I think that most Republicans can rally around during the speech. Well, and that's one of the debatable points, uh, depending on which network you seem to tune into, uh, as to how well the economy is doing and who's responsible for it. Clearly, I think Trump's going to take credit for that. Uh, there are others that suggest that, well, this actually started about two, two and a half years ago, uh, under the Obama administration, and it's simply carried on. I know that uh, there's been a, a great deal made about what's happening with the stock exchange, and that the numbers there are, are fabulous. Uh, to use a phrase, I'm sure we're going to hear from the president tonight as well. But uh, it's, I, I guess, it's uh, it's the right of the sitting president, I guess, to take ownership of any successes like that that occur, no matter when they actually started. That, exactly, and um, President Trump tries to take credit for everything. So there's no question that he will do that. And that's an advantage of the speech. You know, it's a bully pulpit and you get to frame it. Um, but no, a lot of the economic success in the country is just luck or, you know, based on circumstances of which presidents are happen to be in control when there's upswings and downswings. And I think that in general, a lot more kind of credit is given than it probably deserves. But polling in the United States actually shows that more voters give President Obama credit for this economic boom by about a 10 to 12 point margin. And so part of the reason Trump is historically unpopular is because he's not being given credit because he's, a lot of the trends started during the Obama administration and President Obama inherited you know, a, a great recession and kind of really uh, built up upon that where uh, President Trump inherited an economy that was pretty moving along pretty quickly. Um, you mentioned the stock market that there's no question since the election victory of President Trump that's, you know, increased by 40 percent and, and really is on a, a big trend. But at the same time, only about 40 or 50 percent of, of American citizens are even invested in the stock market. So it's another issue that is benefiting um, and causing kind of uh, inequality in the United States. And so those that were benefiting before his presidency are even doing so more now, which leaves a very dissatisfied uh, portion of voters that are going to be persuadable uh, for future elections. Let's talk about the, the, those implications. Uh, Trump in the past, in many of his speeches anyway, Aaron, has had a propensity to simply play to his base and, and talk about those things that he talked about during the campaign and double down on some of those uh, at some point, I guess some people are expecting a somewhat of a bipartisan approach, and and I know at least one of his spokespeople uh, talked about that, that that may be part of the tone of the speech, which seems rather incongruous for the way that Trump has acted so far. Are, are, is there an, a, going to be an attempt tonight to try to reach out to those people that may not be hardcore Trump supporters? Definitely, um, but the question will be, will it be successful, and can people forget many of the controversial things he's either said publicly or on Twitter? Um, you know, his base is very loyal. Currently, he has support of about 80-something percent of the Republican Party, and no matter what he does or says, that they're going to stick with him. But I'm not sure that that constituency is large enough um, to ensure Republican success in the next midterm election in November and to make it more likely that he's going to win re-election in 2020. And so just simply by math and demographics, he's going to need uh, to reach out to you know, a larger a swath of voters. And the kind of question is, 
kind of one-hour speech overcome many of the negative things he's done or um, the perceptions that people have about him. And I certainly have doubts about that because, you know, you can give a great speech with a teleprompter and, and come across very presidential, but, you know, actions both before and after the speech um, are more important. And he's not shown that he can kind of <laughs> uh, has the discipline to use that momentum, positive momentum of a speech to carry forward just because of his ego and, and other factors. He's always going to criticize the media and the, you know, his political opponents and things like that. And so it's, um, you know, <laughs> one night, one, uh, one year, uh, it's just uh, the long-term positive implications seem to be tough unless he's going to change his ways. And, you know, someone that's 71, 72 years old is, is unlikely to do that. It's just who he is. I'm interested about the wall. Could you give us some indication? Because I get mixed reports about support or lack of for the wall. I know it was a big deal during the campaign, and it resonated very well with the rallies that Trump uh, was was involved with so many times. And uh, he's he's mentioned it again, and we're told that it's going to be included in the speech tonight. But I'm also hearing comments from some Republicans in the Congress that are saying, okay, you're not going to get the wall. It's just not going to happen. Uh, but yet he, he, he that's something that, again, was part of, of the course message that he was giving across right now. And, and I find it rather interesting because I know statistically, I think the, when you look at people that, uh, that may be illegally in the country right now, I think about 75% of them actually come by plane. They don't walk across the Mexican border. But, but nonetheless, it's a symbolic thing as far as Trump is concerned. How important is that be, going to be, and how is it going to be received by the Congress? No, you're exactly right. It's a, it's a symbol, kind of, is his campaign. The issue of immigration was kind of the impetus for him running originally, and he had promised the construction of a wall. And, you know, his uh, very popular campaign line was that Mexico was going to pay for that. And I think everyone realizes now that that is not going to happen. Um, you know, it, it, the, the idea uh, of a wall, I think, makes some people feel better. You know, those that are kind of think that they've been forgotten and um, you know, it's a convenient kind of symbol to ally some of their fears. But for the most part, I don't think it has a majority support in the country. Even some Republicans, as you mentioned, um, don't think it's an efficient kind of use of um, um, money. And because exactly people overstay their visas and there's a lot of other causes than just kind of the crossing of the, the borders. And we've kind of seen the wall shrink from something that Mexico is going to pay for to a fence and maybe not a complete wall, just, you know, part of the, the border because of all the geographic impediments to it. Um, but, you know, it was because it was such a big campaign promise and so front and center of his campaign, it's, I think, um, a good portion of his base uh, is, is expecting him to fulfill that promise. And so he's kind of pigeonholed himself into delivering at least some um, partial, uh, some partial wall. And, you know, in exchange for um, a compromise on DACA, uh, he's, asking for an increase of tens of mil- tens of billions of dollars, maybe up to $25, $30 billion for um, some kind of a wall. And it sounds like um, that in the last uh, you know, government shutdown negotiations, the Democrats and Senate Majority Leader, uh, Senate Minority Leader Chuck Schumer was willing to um, give some increased uh, funding for a, a wall in exchange for um, you know, eventual path to citizenship to you know, about a million or two people that are uh, here without uh, that status. And so it's a compromise the Democrats are willing to give, even if they don't believe in it, you know, for a, a larger goal and to try to satisfy some of the demands of their own base. The response is, is uh, an interesting aspect uh, to, to any State of the Union address, and uh, it's, it's kind of like the counter-argument. I don't mean Stormy being on Jimmy Kimmel. I'm talking about the, the Democratic response in this particular case, uh, which will be Joe Kennedy III, who is a young congressman, only 37 years of age. An interesting choice, really. And Yeah, he may have uh, drawn the short straw in this. This uh, <laughs> response is, pro- is probably the, the toughest speech in all of politics because you were competing with the pomp and circumstance and all the advantages of the uh, president. And, um, you know, the president just speaks for an hour in front of 40, 50 million people. Um, and then you cut to somebody in a, a room or a closet that's, you know, trying to combat a, an hour speech in just a few minutes. And the audience trails off and the kind of, uh, you know, American political history has been replete with, um, you know, failed <laughs> candidates and, uh, uh, political legacies, really, because the uh, you know reaction of the speech has been so negative. Uh, Marco Rubio, when he, he went for a sip of water, um, 
you know, last time even the address of the Joint Session of Congress, Steve Bashir looked really awkward in a, a diner in Kentucky. Bobby Jindal was out of his element, the former Louisiana governor. And so it's just uh, the odds are really stacked against you. But I think it's um, a good candidate that the Democrats did pick. They didn't pick a, someone that's likely to run for president in 2020. They wanted to show a younger face of the party um, as opposed to a you know, Joe Biden, Bernie Sanders, somebody like that. He's young, energetic. He's a very good speaker, and he has the Kennedy name um, and the you know the image, the legacy of Camelot is something that everybody can identify to. But I think more important than the person is you know the message. I think the Democrats have clear lines of demarcation um, uh, on issues like immigration and taxes and things like that that um, he can certainly you know make a good uh, appeal to. Um, but it's. Not many people are going to watch it, and the, the staging of it is always pretty awkward. And so he could benefit from very low expectations and, uh, and surprise some people and deliver something, but there's no question that it could be important to him politically. It will put his name on the map, and um, you know he probably has higher ambitions of being a senator, governor, something mm-hmm. like that maybe one day running for president, and it could really, uh, if executed successfully, be a, a springboard to those ambitions. It's interesting, though, that the Democrats in, in choosing Kennedy are reaching backwards uh, to an iconic political family to actually put a face on their future. That is a good point, especially in light of the, um, the failure of the Clinton, uh, Hillary Clinton's campaign in 2016. And I think, yeah, I think they went to the well of, a little too much there, didn't they? Yeah, saturation with, you know, oh, Bush, Clinton, your kind of political dynasties, I do think um, people are tired of, and that's been a very popular message for President Trump and dra- draining the swamp. But, you know, maybe there's been enough um, lag time between the... the the Kennedys and uh, and now to where there's just enough nostalgia um, and since he's you know so young and a fresh face maybe um, it could work out but no you're right and that could show that some weakness in the uh, the bench of the the Democratic Party but it was a tough choice because there are so many likely Democrats that are going to run for president in 2020 um, the party leaders didn't want to be choose seen as picking winners and losers and so they really kind of had to go outside the box and and uh, and there's and not just this address. There's probably a half dozen, dozen addresses in Spanish and um, you know in Twitter. And so there'll be a you know sustained kind of response from many Democrats after tonight's speech. Well, it'll be theater. It'll be uh, politically charged, and uh, it's going to be interesting to watch tonight. Aaron, thanks as always. Great talking with you again today. You as well. Anytime. Take care, Aaron Call, who is the director of debate at the University of Michigan and uh, editor and co-author of Debating the Donald. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML.